Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and uh, did you get a coaster for this? We don't want to get like water rings on our new pulpit, okay? Killing me. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And as usual, anytime I, uh, I mount the pulpit in Dwight's absence, Dwight sends his apologies, if nothing else, because I have melted the pulpit in his absence. And that means you're going to have to hang with me here for a while. Medical missions tend to fascinate Christians uh, for a lot of reasons. I think one of the reasons is because it's the intersection of physical and spiritual healing. And because we find, uh, we find a lot of familiarity with medical missions in, um, in the New Testament, particularly. I, uh, as I was considering our text this morning, which is quite frankly an odd text to be preaching on in, in isolation, just these three verses, but we'll, we'll give it our best crack this morning. Um, I was thinking about famous medical missionaries that at least I'm aware of, and I'm going to make you aware, in case you're not, and tell you you should be aware of these individuals. The first one that came to mind was a gentleman named David Livingston. And David Livingston is famous, probably more famous, as, uh, as a pioneer in the work towards the abolition of the slave trade. He, uh, he eventually is the one who made his way all the way into the inland of Africa. The European powers, the colonial powers, had situated themselves largely on the coast, and David Livingston became aware of the difficult living conditions of natives that were on the interior, and so all in his lonesome, essentially, he trekked his way in there. He's, he's kind of one of these um, renaissance men. He's a gentleman scholar. He's a rags-to-riches story, born into essentially poverty in England. He was raised in a congregationalist family. Um, they're like kissing cousins to, to Baptists. They're like us, except they sprinkle uh, their babies instead of baptizing uh, believers. Uh, he made his way to Africa as a doctor, but he became uh, a scientific investigator. and He became a reformer of the empire and ultimately an anti-slavery crusader and a martyr for the gospel. You may remember more recently, uh, some of you, in, in 2002, uh, there was a number of missionaries, these were Southern Baptist missionaries, who were working at a hospital in Yemen. And while they were there doing their work, uh, an individual came in and he shot three of them dead and, uh, in, the, in the head and in the heart. William Cohn, he was the administrator of the hospital, and Kathleen Garrity, who was the person who handled all the supplies, and then Martha Myers, who was a doctor. They were all gunned down there in the atrium at the hospital while they were about to begin their day of tending to those who had no medical care uh, otherwise, other than what they were giving. As we look here at Luke chapter 16, we, we see one of just a myriad of instances where, where Jesus does something remarkable, um, where he tends not just to the spiritual needs of individuals, but he tends to the physical needs of individuals as well. To kind of set the, set the scene a little bit, you may recall last week that 
Jesus had taken 12 of his disciples, there were any number of disciples, but he had taken 12 particularly up on top of a mountain, and he had set them apart as, as apostles, as apostles in his ministry and as apostles to the church. And they have now uh, come down from this consecration. They were consecrated for a particular ministry with a particular authority. They've descended down the mountain, and they find themselves thronged with a crowd, not just of the other disciples, but of a great multitude that has now gathered at the foot of the mountain with them as well. And so we go from a, a mountaintop spiritual experience with the apostles now down to just kind of normal everyday life with insignificant individuals who history has not recorded the names of, and really history hasn't even recorded any details other than the fact that there's a bunch of them. Uh, and so here we find ourselves in a, a different situation than we did just a, a few verses ago. What I think is happening in verses 17 through 19 of Luke chapter 6 is Jesus is, is introducing through his actions what he's about to expound in the Sermon on the Mount, the famous Sermon on the Mount. We have an expanded version in Matthew Gospel, of course. This is a bit of an abbreviated version, but he's kind of demonstrating with his body and by his actions what he's going to be teaching as he gets into these Beatitudes. And essentially what he's demonstrating is what life with Jesus looks like. Listen, guys, I've set you apart as apostles now, and yes, this is for a particular ministry. Yes, this comes with a particular authority, but don't get your egos inflated too much. It's time to come down the mountain and burst your bubble a little bit and deflate your head and see what life with Jesus looks like. Because rarely is life with Jesus life on the mountaintop. The vast majority of the apostles' lives with Jesus, the vast majority of all the saints through history, the vast majority of your life walking with Jesus is not on the mountaintop. And that's, that's not just coincidental. That's not just the result of random circumstances coming together. That is intentional. So let's, let's see what life following Jesus, what, what life with Jesus, what life in Jesus looks like. I'm going to give you a main point, as I customarily do, and then kind of give you a few building blocks to guide our time together. Really, it's more to guide my time than your time. Uh, hopefully, we'll be a little more efficient than usual as a result of this. The main point of John, Luke, John, Luke chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, I think, is this. The indiscriminate love of Jesus revealed in his power results in life and restoration for those who come to him with desperate faith. Let me say that again for you. The indiscriminate love of Jesus, which is revealed in his power, results in life and restoration for those who come to him with desperate Three kind of main points to this morning's sermon. I don't count the introductory material as a main point, but the three main theological points of today's sermon are this. We're going to look at desperate faith. That's the first one. Second thing we're going to look at is the love and power of Jesus, which brings life and restoration. And then thirdly, we're going to zero in on that love, which in this passage we see is 
indiscriminate. As we set the scene here this morning, we see three groups of people here at the, the bottom of this mountain. We have the apostles, we have a larger group of disciples who are those who are self-identified followers of Jesus, and then we have a much larger group, in fact, a multitude, Luke says in chapter 6, of, of just people. We're going to look more closely at these people. That's all I'm going to say about that now. But as we've said, they've come down from the mountain. They've come down from this spiritual high, this time alone set apart with Jesus where he consecrates them for ministry, and then all of a sudden they are just mobbed with people. I was at a birthday party yesterday. I know this is going to sound strange to some of you, but I don't like to be in a crowd of people. You talk about deflating egos, right? This is a message for me this morning. I would much rather be up in front of a crowd of people, like this right here, than I would be down in in the midst of you. Because when I'm in a crowd of people, I don't know what, for whatever reason, I just feel my chest tightening, and I'm not sure what to do, and I'm always think someone's going to knock something over, probably one of my kids, because there's four of them running around, they're just grabbing things off the counter, and it's, oh my gracious. And then finally the crowd disperses, and I can breathe again. So I, I think I may have known a little bit what some of these apostles might have been feeling when they come down from this time alone with Jesus, and then all of a sudden there are just people everywhere. You can't breathe, you can't move, there's so much sound, there are so many different smells. You need to go to Nicaragua with us sometime if you want to experience some interesting smells. There's just sensory overload has taken place. This is a situation they find themselves in. And, and not only is it sensory overload because of a crowd, because of sound, because of smells, why are these people here? What's the reason they've come? Verse 18, Jesus, yeah, of course, Jesus. Why do they want to see Jesus? It says they want to hear him and they want to be healed of their diseases. It's flu season, people. So not only have we just spent a spiritual high with Jesus on the mountain, but we come down and it is a slam-packed emergency room. People are coughing on you. There is stuff oozing. There are probably open wounds. Oh, my gracious. I would have passed out on the ground and busted my head open on a rock and had to have been tended to. You should go to the hospital with me sometime. Always interesting to do visitation, right, Tom? Where's Tom and Joyce? I'm going to tell a story about Tom and Joyce real quick. This is unplanned. So I had only been here for maybe a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, and Tom had hip, hip replacement. Is that what it was? Tom had a hip replacement surgery, and so Dwight and I, we roll up into the, into the hospital room to check on Tom, and he's, you know, sitting there in his in his bed, and Joyce is there. Hey, Tom. Hey, Joyce. How you doing? Yeah, yeah, we're doing good. We're doing good. We're doing good. And, and we're talking. I don't really remember much of the conversation, but all of a sudden, Joyce, she says, you want to see? And she, like, leaned over, and she started to, like, pull the sheet up so we could see Tom's wound. And I, I could not get out of the room fast enough. I couldn't, I, really, I couldn't get out of the room, period, because the door, how it was hinged, it was mostly closed, and so I just kind of turned myself and stood in the and stood in the corner. It was like I was in timeout because I don't deal well with that kind of stuff. It's a little, it's a little, little much for me. I'm kind of actually getting a little lightheaded thinking about it right now. Okay. They had come to hear him, and they had come to be healed 
of their diseases. This multitude, they understood their condition. They were at the point of utter desperation. There's nowhere else they, they could turn to. All of, the, all of the, the medicine of the day, all of the wisdom of the ages, which wasn't much at this point in time, it wasn't doing them any good. And not only were these people sick. So, see, we have to understand that, that disease in Jesus' day is, is different than, than disease today. If someone here is sick, we go visit them in the hospital. If someone is that in that day is sick, they're cut off. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't have any contact with them. They've been cut off from society, cut off because of some contagion they carried. They were cut off because their disease may have been the result of their own scandalous activity. They may have been cut off because their ailment meant they were richly defiled and could no longer participate in the worship of God at the temple. And whatever their circumstances were, whatever the reason for their disease and for their cut-offness, they find themselves on equal ground. They're at the base of the mountain in the presence of Jesus. Whether they were outcast because of their own foolish mistakes or through no fault of their own, they were outcast nonetheless, and they all came to Jesus with the same desperate faith, looking for the same healing. They came to be healed, and they came to hear. Really, the, 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 the text lays the emphasis on the fact that they came to hear. They came to hear first, and then they came to be healed. So we need to make sure we don't invert that, we also need to make sure that we don't minimize the fact that they came to be healed. What did they come to hear about? Surely by, by this point in time, Jesus' fame, we're only six chapters into the Gospel of Luke, his ministry has been relatively brief so far, but the nature of his ministry has caused his fame to spread far and wide. And how do we know? I mean, what, how is this crowd described? It is a, it is a multitude. These are a lot of people who have gathered together, just waiting for Jesus to come down from the mountain. You may recall some of the dramatic events of the preceding chapters of Luke that we've been going through these past few months. Some of these instances where Jesus stands toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of the day, these Pharisees who are seeking a way to accuse him, he stands toe-to-toe with them, and he doesn't blink. He doesn't bat an eye. Luke chapter 6 uh, is just it, here in Luke chapter 6. The beginning of this passage is one of my favorite ones. Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. We'll just re- review it real quick for the sake of this morning. On another Sabbath, it says, he entered the synagogue. He was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were watching Jesus closely, as they always were, so that they could seek an opportunity to accuse him, if he indeed had healed this man on the Sabbath. Jesus, verse 8, knew their thoughts, and he says to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. I know I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but Jesus, he just leans into an awkward situation, right? He's not, he's not backpedaling. He's not treating anyone with kid gloves. So the man, he rises and he stands there. In verse 9, Jesus says to them, I ask you, Pharisees, you religious leaders, you leaders of the people, you experts in the law, 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? An interesting part of this passage that I think is often missed is, is the comparison Jesus is, is drawing. Is it, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Because in the absence of doing good that you might do, what do you do? You do harm. So just bear that in mind. And that, that's all for that right now. After asking that question, looking around at all the Pharisees, verse 10, Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, stretch it out. Stretch out your hand. I, I can imagine Jesus, he's, it, you know, if, if this were the 21st century, he might be standing there with his microphone in the synagogue teaching, and then what does he do with the microphone? He drops it, and he walks away. Right? Nothing, nothing else needs to be said. This is Jesus' mic drop moment here with the Pharisees. Jesus was a man with a message which was compelling. His message was so compelling that people were coming from all of Judea to hear this message. We have to understand that, that these people coming from all of Judea, this is not a casual undertaking. This is not going to, or blocking off two hours during one evening to go hear a motivational speaker talk about having your best life now. This required forethought. It required planning. It required not just hours. It required days of travel, days out of your life to come and hear this man. Hear this man who told the man to stretch out his withered hand. And really what he was doing is telling this man, stretch out what your withered hand and stick it in the eye of these Pharisees. This was a compelling message that Jesus had. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. This is the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's sitting there in the synagogue, and it just so happens, right? Just so happens, never actually happens. In the providence of God, the reading that morning was from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus has the opportunity to read this passage. It's, the scroll is handed to him, and so he unrolls it, and he finds the place where the reading begins, and he reads in Chapter 4, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now all is well and good, but then an even more remarkable thing happens. What does he say? He rolls up the scroll and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one whom the prophet Isaiah foretold, and he sits down. He sits down just like he will one day sit down at the right hand of the Father because his work is finished. It's done. The people, I mean, they're pretty impressed by this. This, this Jesus, he's remarkable. He's talking about good news to the poor, liberty to captives, sight for the blind, liberty for those who are oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor? But then Jesus, oh Jesus, why do you have to mess up a good thing, Jesus? What does Jesus say? Verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you heard, what you have heard you did at Capernaum, what, excuse me, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus, 
You spoke, now show us a miracle. You said you're the, the foretold Messiah from Isaiah. Show us, show us your power, Jesus. Do a magic trick for us, Jesus. What is Jesus' response? No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In truth, verse 25, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Remember Sidon. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then he goes on in verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So Jesus not only sticks the withered finger of the man in the Pharisee's eye, Jesus sticks his own finger in the eyes of his own people. Because they had heard a word that elicited some emotional response, and then they wanted to see a trick. I wanted to see Jesus show off his magic and show off his power. Just, just to be clear, Jesus doesn't have magic. I want, you, I want to make that point clear. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on as well. But instead, who did Jesus go to? He went to Sidonians and he went to Syria. He went to people who, according to the law, were cut off. They were foreigners. They were strangers to the promises of God and to all of his covenant blessings. And Jesus says, the Lord showed them his favor, but not Israel. Man, this is a powerful message. Jesus' ministry began with a bang because not only does he have this confrontation here at the synagogue in Capernaum, after this confrontation, what do they try to do? Try to kill him to drive him off of a cliff. And Jesus, he just passes through their midst and he goes on his way to continue healing, to continue teaching, to continue not pulling punches, continuing his ministry, which rankled so many people and ruffled so many feathers with the religious elite. Jesus' message and his demonstrations of power, they set him apart as a teacher that was cut from totally different cloth. And people had never heard someone teach like this. They said of him, he teaches as one who has authority. Unlike you Pharisees, unlike you scribes. Jesus was a man who spoke not just based upon the authority of the prophets of God in the Old Testament, but he spoke of his own authority. The same way when he acted. He acted miraculously through his own power. He was unlike any other prophet who had come before. Certainly God had done miraculous things. I mean, Moses, he, he splits the Red Sea. He, he strikes the rock and brings forth water. We have Elijah. He calls down fire to consume the offering when he's at his battle there with the priests of Baal. I mean, God has done miraculous things through his prophets, but it was not their own power. But here, Jesus acts of his own Accord. He is channeling no one else's power. That's why I say this isn't magic. This isn't a trick. This is God himself in the flesh speaking with an authority no one has ever spoken with before and acting with an authority no one has ever acted with 
before. So no wonder these people filled with desperate faith come to hear this man and come to have their diseases healed. What is a disease? I'm, 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 I'm not a medical professional, obviously. Um, wouldn't last long in that line of work. And so this is, this is not a technical medical definition. This is, Josh, this is Josh's ruminating. This is Josh's philosophical ponderings about disease. So take them for what they're worth, which probably isn't much. As I consider disease, though, or as I consider sickness, I think that the most fundamental way we could understand disease and sickness is that disease or sickness is the absence of health. And that, that's, a, that's a theological definition of disease and sickness. Because, yes, disease and sickness is physical, but more than anything, it is theological. Where does death come from? Sin, that's right. And what is sin the result of? The fall. I mean, I mean death, disease, sickness, we trace it all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where once there was perfection, now there is the absence of perfection. Where once there is only life and health, now there is disease and death. So these people, fully aware that they are somehow incomplete, that they lack something of necessity, something vital. They come to Jesus. We talked about how oftentimes these people were cut off from the religious worship of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing defiled, nothing lacking holiness, nothing incomplete can be used in the worship of God. This is, this is why a, a, a an animal with a spot or a blemish could not be a sacrifice. A lame animal could not be taken. I mean, it could be fat, it could be a lot of good meat, but if its leg's broken, sorry, not going to happen. And why is this? Because God, God is the absence of incompletion. <laughs> That's a strange way to say that. God is the fullness of all things. He is perfection times perfection. And nothing which is incomplete, nothing which is defined, Filed, nothing which is cut off can be in his presence. And so the people come, not just because they were sick, not just because their physical life was threatened, but because they couldn't even worship God. I mean, I mean, when we're sick, take a few Sundays off, we come back, everything's all right. You know, we have our, have our Z-Pack, or we have our Tamiflu, or we have our flu vaccine. Thought it did that did us, right? So we come back. I'm, I'm just kidding. Get your flu shot. It's, again, not a medical professional, okay? This is recorded, so I, I have a way out in case someone sues me, I guess. But we go, and we get our medicine, and we, we rest, and we drink a lot of fluids, and then we come back to church the next Sunday, and what do we do? We worship God people of God. Think about the woman with an issue of blood who for years and decades had never been able to come with the people of God 
and worship God. Imagine that. Now, for some of us, we consider that, and we're like, what's the big deal? If that is your attitude towards meeting with God's people to worship God, let me lovingly and sternly warn you and rebuke you. If that is your attitude towards worshiping with the people of God, you don't know the people of God, you don't know God. You are cut off. You are separated from God and from all of his promises. Take a lesson from these people who came from all of Judea and who came from Tyre and Sidon so that they could be healed and they could be in the presence of Jesus. We need to yearn to be in Jesus' presence like they did. move on now. Whatever the particular reasons these people have for coming to see Jesus, whether it was to hear a message or to be healed of a malady, these people came from far and wide because they believed there was something different about this prophet sent by God. And these people knew that there was no other way out of their desperate condition, but they believed that Jesus just might possibly be the way. They were at the end of their rope. These people had desperate faith. We turn now and we see Jesus' response to these people. We see how the love and power of Jesus brings life and it brings restoration. So how does Jesus respond to this crush of humanity? He's confronted with disease and with malady, with brokenness. There's a crowd crying out, pressing in so they might touch him and be healed. And some of these people were even possessed by demons. Just, just real quickly this afternoon, go, go and see how people who are possessed by demons act. This is not a, a happy crowd gathered together. Imagine shrieking and crying. There's probably a few naked people running about. Really, in many respects, this is a horrific scene that Jesus and the apostles come down to. But Jesus doesn't flee the crowd, and he doesn't get them to, to, to line up. Come on, orderly line, single file, please. Instead of putting on a surgical mask and latex gloves to prevent contamination or cross-contamination, the picture we see is one of Jesus just standing there. And I, I'm going to go a little off script here. This is, this is not Bible. This is Josh. But I'm just painting a picture for how I imagine this scene playing out. So again, take it with a grain of salt. Take it for what it is. Being mobbed by the dregs of society, Jesus stands there fearlessly. Even as his apostles and his disciples shrink back in horror. I mean, you can imagine a leprous man reaching out to touch Jesus so that he can be healed. And what are the disciples and the apostles thinking? Jesus, if he touches you, you'll be unclean. But Jesus, he just stands there fearlessly and his eyes are blazing with love and with compassion. And Jesus lets these despised people touch him. And as they do, power, his power, flows out and heals them of all their diseases. This is not magic. It is not mysticism. It is not modern medicine. This is the power of God which spoke the world into existence. It is the power of God which knit these people together in their mother's wombs. It is the love of God 
which numbered every hair on their heads and every day of their earthly existence. It is this love, it is this power, which in the face of disease, decay, and death brings healing and life and restoration. Where once there was physical sickness, societal societal, uh, division, and an inability to worship, Jesus, by his own power, brings healing, and he brings reconciliation, and he brings everything they needed and everything we need to be able to worship God. What a picture of the love of God in Christ the Son. And this love, it's an indiscriminate love. Notice at the end of verse 17, people from all Jerusalem and Judea and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Jerusalem and Judea, I I think we give that, that we understand that, right? These are Jesus' people. But Tyre and Sidon? Do any of you happen to remember who's from Sidon? Probably the most famous or infamous daughter of Sidon. I'll give you the hint. hint. She was the daughter of Ethbaal. Does that help anybody? No? Okay, well, I tried. Wife of Ahab? Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of Sidon. Jezebel, wicked Jezebel, who led Ahab and the people of Israel to worship false gods, to set up idols in the temple, to turn their back on the God who had led them out of slavery in Egypt. This Jezebel. She made her daddy proud, didn't she? She went in and she undermined the Lord in his own backyard. And this is where people are coming from. These are, these are Jezebel's cousins and great nieces and great nephews who have come to this Jesus to be healed. And this is nothing new. Remember what we read about earlier? Luke chapter 4, Jesus? What? Where, where was the widow? In Zarephath? In Sidon? She was a Sidonian. She was one of Jezebel's descendants too. See, God, his love is not a love that is only for the Jews. His love is not a love that's only for people who grew up in church. But his love is an indiscriminate love that goes even to those who led his people to rebel against him. His love is for Sidonians, for those from Tyre. His love is for jihadists. His love is for Antifa protesters, the anti-fascists. His love is for right-wing nationalists who are trying to overthrow the government. His love is for Black Lives Matter. It is an indiscriminate love. Jesus didn't say Jews up front. And we'll get to the rest of you if I have time. It was a love that was for anyone and everyone who would come to him with desperate faith. Jesus' love flowed toward them all. His power flowed toward them all, just like his blood would flow for them all. 
the radical message of the gospel, the message which compelled the 12 disciples to walk with Jesus and carry his gospel to the ends of the earth and die with Jesus. This message, which comforted innumerable martyrs for the faith and countless nameless saints as they made their way through the valley of the shadow of death. This is the message. Jesus' love is towards all. And his power and life bring healing from disease, restoration from brokenness, and life from death for all who come and cling to him with desperate faith. What does this, what does this mean for us? You know, in, in preaching class, they tell you you haven't really preached until you've gotten to the point of application. So here we go. Let's make it personal, right? Let's lean into the awkward a little bit. What does this mean for our life as a church together? Are we consumed with ourselves? With our preferences, with our desires? Is our focus on our own comfort and our own well-being? Are we perpetually trying to meet Jesus on the mountaintop? Or are we willing and ready to go with Jesus to the crowd? To the mob, to the, the refugees, legal or illegal. I'm not trying to make a political point. Are we willing to go with Jesus to those who are receiving treatment for HIV? Are we willing to go with Jesus to those who have lost their home, whether it's because of their own foolish actions or something totally out of their control? Are we willing to go with Jesus, with the message of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, believing that the gospel is the only hope that these people and anybody have on this world? Because I am convinced if we are, then we will see the power of God. Maybe it's this afternoon or tomorrow. Wayne's not here because he had surgery, but I'm sure he's answering emails, and it might be a really interesting email because he's on pain medication if you get a response, if you do get a response. And it's amusing. I'd love to see it. But, but maybe, maybe this afternoon or tomorrow is a great opportunity to email Wayne and say, hey, Wayne, how can I be involved at Agape Women's Services? How can I be involved at Good Samaritan ministry? How can I go to the people who are broken and who are hurting, to those who are diseased, to those who are the dregs of society? How can I go in the name of Jesus and in the power of Jesus with the gospel of Jesus and seek to see their lives transformed? What about us as individuals? Do you remember what life was like before you found life and restoration in Jesus? Do you remember what it meant to be deficient, to be lacking, to be perpetually coming up short and cut off. When did you last thank Jesus for taking you from your wretched, pitiful state and making you whole again? Oh, gratitude is in short supply in my life. Have we deluded ourselves into believing that life with Jesus is amongst the privilege and the will healed? Maybe we just need to be reminded that life with Jesus is life in the trenches. It's life in the muck and the mire. And not just your muck and your mire, but everyone's muck and everyone's mire. There are some of you here who are friends and 
you're not followers of Jesus, and we're, we're happy that you're here. And we, we want to get to know you better and know you more. But this text here, these three verses in Luke chapter 6, they have an implication for you, too. This is not just for followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, do you recognize how needy you are? Do you understand that you are cut off from God, that you are without hope in this world and the next, that you are deficient? That's not a... That's not a popular thing to say in this age, in this society, the I am enough society. You are not enough. None of us is enough. That's why Jesus had to die, to make up what we lack, to take our incompleteness and make us whole again. Do you realize that you are in desperate need of a Savior? Then have desperate faith like these people did and come to Jesus. He'll make you whole. To all of us. This gospel is not merely a message. It is not just the benefits. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, peace in this life. The gospel is a man. The gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so when by desperate faith we are united to him, all that is his by right becomes ours by union to him. And when that is our reality, when that is what we understand about following Jesus, then it, it leads us to, to lead lives like Helen Rosevere did. And I'll end with this. Helen Rosevere was an English missionary to the Congo. And she served there for about 20 years in the 50s to the 70s. She was born in 1925, and the Lord took her home just a couple years ago. Helen was raised in church. Like so many of us, like me. She's raised in church. They were there every Sunday. They were there Sunday morning and Sunday evening. It's a novel idea, isn't it? That's all for that. She became Christian as a medical student when she was at Cambridge University in 1945. There was a, an intervarsity retreat there, and the Bible teacher, Graham Scroggie, he asked her to give her testimony the final evening, and after she had... He gave her a Bible, and he highlighted Philippians 3.10 and wrote a note for her there. Well, let's just read Philippians 3.10. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Let's go back to verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. So, so Graham, he, he highlighted that verse, chapter, verse 10, and he wrote this in her Bible. Helen, tonight you've entered into the first part of that verse, that I may know him. This is the only, only the beginning. 
There's a long journey ahead. And my prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of his resurrection and also, God willing, one day perhaps know the fellowship of his sufferings, being made like him in his death. I don't think Helen or Graham quite knew how prophetic those words would prove to be. She made her way to the Congo, which later became Zaire, so if you're looking for the Congo on a map, you're not going to find it. In the first two years, she founded a training school for nurses, and she trained these women nurses to serve as evangelists and sent them out into the bush to meet with those who were desperate, desperate for, for medicine and for healing. In 1955, she moved seven miles away, and she took a former leper colony and turned it into a hospital, and there were 100 beds there with mothers and infants and lepers and children. There was a training school for paramedics. There was 48 rural clinics that were based out of there. And outside of this facility, there wasn't any other medical help for 150 miles. She eventually returned to the UK for a furlough for a number of years and went back to the Congo just before the Congo became independent from Belgium in 1960. In 1964, a civil war broke out in the Congo. and All of their hard work and labor of these medical missionaries was destroyed. It was torn down. And Helen was among 10 missionaries who were captured by these rebels and put under house arrest for several weeks. And after that, they were imprisoned. On October 29th, 1964, Helen Rosevere was brutally raped. Again, and again, and again. On October 29th, Helen finally understood what it meant to share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Reflecting on her life and on how the Lord had been gracious to her, even in the midst of her suffering, this medical missionary, she said, God never uses a person greatly until he has wounded him deeply. The privilege he offers you is greater than the price you have to pay. The privilege is greater than the price. By God's grace, may we be a people who not just understand but believe in the depths of our hearts, that the privilege is greater than the price as we go to those who are lost and who are suffering and give them the words to declare our love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your grace and in your kindness you have sent Jesus to heal our diseases, to bind up our broken wounds. And I ask, Father, that you would help us understand like Jesus' apostles eventually understood and like so many of his faithful followers who died martyrs' deaths understood that the privilege of following your son Jesus is well worth the price. Would you give us desperate faith to come and to find in your son Jesus our all in all, our only hope, our only comfort in life and in death. And we pray these things 
in his name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to stand now and we're going to have a time of response where we sing and we'll uh, invite you to sing with us and as we sing consider the word of God and consider your need for a savior. Maybe you have questions about what life and ministry look like at Boone Trail and what membership is like. Well, I'm going to ask Stephen to come forward up here and you can come and he'd be happy to share with you about that. And so uh, come and you can respond as we sing together. There is a fountain filled with blood.